Hey guys, Nick and Kara here, back with another installment of, this, of the Love is Never Wasted podcast. We had a really amazing interview this week with New York Times bestselling author Ashley Rhodes Quarter. She is an amazing woman with an amazing story, and I think you guys will really enjoy this uh, podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, so I read your book. When I was first looking into becoming a foster mom, I, I feel like I tried to find every single book, memoir written about fostering. And I will tell you, without a shadow of a doubt, yours was by far my favorite. And I had to think about, it was so helpful to me as, as a foster mom to a teen to hear your perspective and to be able to kind of think back on it. Your book, to anyone who doesn't know, three little words. And what what everyone kind of probably thinks is it's I love you. And one of the things that I loved the most is what those three little words were, because I think my daughter said those exact same three little words. <laughs> and having kind of prepared through you, I, I just heard what I heard what I needed to hear through that. So will you tell um, our listeners a little bit about your story? I kind of jumped ahead to the ending, but I just want to hear a little bit. Well, I'm so thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. And again, that's incredibly high praise. Thank you so much. And you're right. The three little words are not what everyone expects them to be. A lot of people will read a book about foster care or adoption, and they presume that it's, I love you, and rainbows and sunshine, and adoption is this life-saving, wonderful, momentous occasion, which it certainly can be. At the same time, adoption is rife with trauma and loss, and at its core, it's both a celebratory opportunity, but also one of grieving. And so Mm -hmm. when I wrote three little words, my three little words were not, I love you. (laughs) Um, I I don't know, should I, are your listeners okay with spoilers or is that gonna be a big- Spoiler, we'll just spoiler (laughs) alert a little bit, but I don't think that'll be too bad. (laughs) Okay, well, and also I joke with like my teen readers, I'm like, the three little words are in the back of the book. So just go to the back. (laughs) Just go to the back of the book and read it. Interestingly, it, the book started as an essay that I wrote when I was in high school because I was doing oh. an essay contest for the New York Times Magazine. I was super nerdy. Going to college was always something that I aspired to. But across the country, 3% or less of the youth who are in foster care will go to college. Wow. And percent or less of youth in foster care will even graduate high school. So I knew that this was such a lofty goal. And mm-hmm. I was doing every scholarship, sweepstakes, you know, anything I could because I had been adopted so late. I didn't have a big trust fund or college fund right. set aside. My family didn't have time to kind of plan for the adoption of a surprise preteen. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I did an essay contest for the New York Times Magazine, and they asked you to write about a day that was really life-changing, and I wrote about my adoption day in an essay called Three Little Words, and I wrote, it wasn't necessarily this rainbows and sunshine, happily ever after. I was completely terrified, because as a foster child who had lived in the system for almost 10 years, I had seen kids, my peers, be unadopted and sent back. Mm. 
So adoption for me, it didn't mean permanency. It didn't mean happily ever after. I didn't even believe in happily ever after. I didn't believe that I was worth loving. I had such a low self-esteem. And so when this prospect of adoption came about, I was like, mm, I don't know about all this. I mean, it's it's difficult to consider this to be a viable option when you've seen kids returned like an outfit that doesn't fit. And right. so, you know, this idea that not even adoption was permanent. In fact, this this adoptive family of mine, it was like a little too good to be true. You know, <laughs> there's a foster kid. I had 14 different placements. So I lived in group homes. I've lived in a variety of foster homes with different cultures, ethnicities, rules, regulations, practices. So I'd had quite a little sampling of life, <laughs> even until 12 years old. And so I was like, wait a minute, you know, these people, there's not locks on the cabinets and they do like family dinners and <laughs> I have like chores and responsibilities as part of this family system. You know, it's not like living in a group home where you eat cafeteria food. Like my parents made fresh pasta. And I was like, okay, well, this is questionable. This is too much. <laughs> I was like, I don't know about all this. Um, but, and so when the judge asked me, because older kids in the adoption process, especially now, have much more say in court, mm -hmm. whereas when I was in care, kids weren't really readily listened to in the legal mm -hmm. process. So the judge turned to me and said, well, Ashley, would you like me to sign these adoption papers and make your adoption official? And true to my my, you know, stubborn, traumatized, you know, preteen self, I shrugged my shoulders and I said, I guess so. <sighs> and so I guess so were my three little words. And mm -hmm. everyone again expects it to be, I love you. But I think my response really speaks to how complicated adoption can be. Mm -hmm. And it was very raw and it was very honest. And it turns out that's kind of my go-to panic response because fast <laughs> forward, you know, decades <sighs> or more later, when my husband proposed to me, I'm oh, like, no. expecting it. So here he is, you know, down on one knee and I was like, oh, well, you may, and I was like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that this, this, like, those three little words have become a bit of a recurring theme in my life. <laughs> but, That's um, amazing. You know, my, my story is one where it was not always easy. It's not always flattering, but it's true and it's raw. And I wrote mm -hmm. it not to bust out a tiny violin or complain about my childhood, but I really wanted it to be a call to action. I wanted yeah. it to be something that others could learn from. And all of the scenes that I talk about, I'm hoping that other parents, professionals, educators, young people going through the system themselves, I hope they can read this book and glean some kind of hope or motivation or like you were saying as a parent, just some, mm -hmm. some different understanding and a different perspective because there were so many scenarios that I encountered with my adoptive parents yes. that they were like scratching their heads wondering what was going on. But trauma it looks different for every mm -hmm. individual. And you may have a kiddo who is like me. I was very independent. I was very stubborn. I had raised myself and I felt very parentified over my younger mm -hmm. sibling. And so 
maybe on the outside, I looked like I had it all together because I didn't have a lot of the typical like ADHD. I wasn't destructive at school. That was really right. Temporary. So I didn't exhibit a lot of the more typical, obvious behaviors of trauma. So it may look like I had it all together. But there was still stuff that happened that drove my parents crazy. And they, <laughs> they really, I mean, there's an entire chapter in the first book called Testing, Testing, where I push every button. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah, and then it was finally like, man, I can't get rid of these people. But it took years for me to have mm -hmm. to relearn how to trust, how to believe in adults who said that they were going to do things. But in my experience, that wasn't always the it's, case until, right. you know, my adoptive parents. And I had a Casa Guarded Vitam volunteer who was really instrumental. And it wasn't really until I had these reliable adults, these consistent adults mm -hmm. introduced into my life, until then, I didn't really have a rubric for what it meant to have those trusting relationships, have the opportunity for attachment when children are removed from their families of origin or even children who are adopted at birth. That initial removal is a primal wound that rarely mm -hmm. gets addressed. I mean, so you're even if the child is perceived to be going into a better circumstance, mm -hmm. that still is loss and rejection. And Oh, yeah. Confusion. And so, you know, it took a long time for me to really accept that, but also even learn how to accept the love of another. Mm -hmm. So you said something um, that I think is really interesting, because in a lot of the stories that I hear and read um, of, of children that were able to kind of um, cope with their circumstances, a lot of times I hear what you said about school being your sanctuary. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because there's two things that you said, not just that, but the guardian at litem. I think a lot of people feel like they can't be foster parents and they feel like maybe that leaves them with no other options to help. And these two opportunities seem like they were massive in your life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, tremendously. Well, I will go on and on about the <laughs> system because I was a proud little public school kid. And when I went to school, I got free breakfast and I got free lunch. And sometimes those were the only meals that I would have. So hmm. when I went to school, I wasn't beaten and I wasn't starved. And I got a lot of positive reinforcement in that environment because I think educators were so shocked at my circumstances, but equally pleased that I wasn't flipping over desks or <laughs> absconding from the classroom. Um, but I. I would be remiss if I didn't admit that I, I'm a kiddo who was very fortunate that I was not born drug affected. I did not right. have cognitive disability or a learning disability. And so I didn't have some of those barriers to overcome as was the case with my younger brother. And so right. school was just this unbelievable sanctuary for me. And I learned that even though I changed schools twice a year until the seventh grade, which was really hard, but in each of those moves, I was able to kind of have that as a coping mechanism because when I would be bullied or made fun of, I would be like, oh, well, what did you get on your English test? <laughs> you know, that was sort of my sassy clapback. <laughs> and so, um, but I also, I had teachers, again, it's, it's those small acts of kindness that ultimately make such an impact on the life of a child. So when I'm speaking or doing seminars or keynotes, that's something that I reinforce so readily because 
it's it's underestimated constantly, but one of the big ripple effects that started my love of literature and writing and reading was my fourth grade teacher who gave me my first book, which happened to be Anne of Green Gables. And so I'm reading this book and I was like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I know your listeners can't see me, but I have red curly hair. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's up with all of these orphans who have red hair and their names start with the letter A? Like, I was getting a little surprised here. What's happening <laughs> with this? I was like, what? So little orphan Ashley over here. I was like, okay, there's something to this storytelling thing. Um, and so that was my, my start in journaling and, and having that kind of outlet creatively for my frustrations and processing the world around me. And that became a real therapeutic tool for me um, that I utilize to this day. It's my way of processing the world and my experiences. And, you know, instead of firing off a, a hot email, I, you know, can journal. And <laughs> I think that's a skill that all professionals. <laughs> we you know, need that outlet. <laughs> we need that. We need that. And so but that was really, really powerful. Just this mm -hmm. teacher who gave a little kid a book. And it was like the first like book that was mine and I didn't have to bring it back to the library and I you know it was it was just so yeah. cool and that started this ripple effect that you know strengthened my love of education my desire to go to college you know doing all of these essay contests and so um after I did that big essay contest um I happened to win first place and that's when publishers contacted me interested in hearing my full story so I like to think that my first book contract, which came about when I was still a teenager, I mean, it kind of started when a teacher gave a kid a book and it snowballed from there. So, I mean, these little moments were so precious and so meaningful. And in retrospect, I can look back and I know there were therapists and workers and people who were implementing various techniques or evidence-based practices or whatever it was, but the real change and those real aha moments came when an adult just showed me an act of kindness wow. when an adult showed up when they said they were going to and mm -hmm. it was it was some of those just very basic things that created that tremendous impact and that sort of leads to the conversation about the guardian ad litem casa i'm from florida so we're a little wonky here in the south and so our <laughs> casas which are court appointed special advocates they're called guardian ad litem same program different title and my casa was a woman named mary miller and she was a volunteer who came onto my case and realized that my brother and i had been in foster care for over five years before she had been appointed and no one was really doing anything we were a case that kind of fell through the cracks and i wasn't a kid that was causing a lot of trouble so i wasn't super high on the gotta deal with it list mm -hmm. and so when she jumped on, she realized that no one knew who my biological father was. My mom was a teen parent living in foster care herself when she got pregnant with me, but she wasn't doing anything on her case plan. And, you know, my brother and I subsequently were just bouncing around in the foster care system. And so here was this volunteer. And that's what's cool about CASAs is that they're, they're citizens from all walks of life. They're just people mm -hmm. who have a little bit of time and really big hearts and have a vested interest in making change in their community 
community. So here was this lady, she didn't have a background in child welfare, but she strolls in there and she was like, this is not okay. You know, this kid needs to be getting her teeth cleaned and her hair cut. And where's that poster board for her science fair project? You know, <laughs> it, it was filling in all of these day-to-day gaps. And, you know, those are some of the big things that foster kids don't have. We don't always have a lot of normalcy. We don't have someone who's filling in those gaps, who's mm-hmm. That even sometimes our day to day needs are being met. That's why I loved your recommendation. If people feel like fostering is just too overwhelming or too much of a commitment, but they have a strong passion for helping foster children, becoming a CASA is a fantastic way to dip your toes into this arena because there are CASA programs all over the country. So if you just hop online and Google, you know, CASA program in your county or your city, you'll probably find a local program to you. And that really is a great way to become involved and just learn more about what the needs are in your specific. Exactly. I love how you say that about learning more about what the needs are. I think a lot of times when these affluent communities, there's just no um, crossover. They don't even know anyone you know, that needs the help that they have to offer. And just getting involved in these programs, they're going to have a a connection to communities and to people who really need them that they otherwise wouldn't even know. And it's so much more um, fulfilling, I think. A lot of times people just want to kind of write a check and that money is important and I don't want to discount that. But when you can actually firsthand get to know someone and love them and care about them and be there for them in ways that a program couldn't, you know, in ways that someone could only do it if they really knew them and cared about them. It's, it's just really special and neat. And I think a lot of people just wouldn't know where to even begin. And what you just said seems like such a fantastic place to begin. You don't need to commit to, you know, a a whole new family member, but it's a way to reach a community and reach a human being that may need you. Yeah. And I always say that there is always a way to serve foster children. Almost all of the organizations that I know of or work with or have been a kid under their care, they're all nonprofit organizations. So maybe you do have the capacity emotionally and functionally to be a foster parent. But if not, you could become a CASA volunteer. Or maybe you can provide respite for other foster Mm -hmm. parents, which basically means that you go through similar trainings and clearances, but you just provide sleepovers and overnights for existing foster parents who might feel a little overwhelmed or just need a break. There are mentor opportunities. Maybe you're a business owner and you can provide job training for teenagers who are aging out of care. Maybe you have an affiliation with your local bank and you can teach teenagers life skills and help them learn how to open a bank account, how to adult, because let's face it, adulting is hard. It's even harder for kids who don't have that support system. And I've seen time and time again, instances where there are these young survivors who manage to survive foster care. They turn 17, 18, and maybe they go to community college. Maybe they get into that four-year college, but guess what? They don't have a family. So the very first holiday, Mm. very first spring break, the dorms are closed and suddenly they're homeless again because they don't have families to go home to. And that was the big difference for me having been adopted is that when my dorms closed, 
I had somewhere to go. I had people to call when I wasn't sure if I could microwave eggs in my dorm room, like, in the <laughs> microwave, you know, I had people who were there for me because. Well, I, and when you had your first, your first baby, having, exactly. well, and yeah, I, I think say. about that, trying to manage that without. Um, well, and, and that was sort of the, the blessing that I always talk about is that because I ultimately had that family and support system, it's little things that others maybe don't think about, but I had a father to walk me down the aisle when I got mm-hmm. married. And yeah. I had a mother to hold my hand in the delivery room when we gave birth to our first child. And by we, I solidly mean me. I <laughs> full credit for that whole experience. As you should, as you should. <laughs> I'm owning that one. Um, but it, it's particularly for teenagers and foster kids, we are stuck in this survival mode. So Mm -hmm. it's almost impossible for us neurologically, developmentally, I mean, just anything to think about what our lives are going to be like when we're 25, when we're 35. And I, um, I I turned 35 this year, like, happy birthday. (laughs) I turned 35 this year too. Oh, bravo, bravo. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's like, I need my support system more than ever. You know, when my Mm -hmm. kids are acting crazy, it's like, and that is, the other running joke is that everything that I dished out to my adoptive parents, I'm getting back like 4,000 fold. So that's <sighs> working in that mysterious way. Good but, joys. You know, my kids have a pop-up and a Gigi and people who yeah. love them and spoil them and send them back home having eaten much too much sugar. <sighs> um, and I'm a really big proponent of practicing what you preach. So when I graduated from college, I became a CASA volunteer myself. And after I got married and we felt like we had more capacity, my husband and I became foster parents as well. And we were foster parents for almost five years and cared for wow. over 25 kids. And wow. so- A lot of people might look at my story and say, oh, well, that happened so many years ago. Things are so different systemically. But our recent experiences as foster parents show that we still have much work to do. The need is just as present now as it was when I was in foster care. And I'm really hoping that people will find it in their hearts to participate in some way because I've Mm -hmm. yet to meet a community anywhere across the country. And I've, I've been super blessed that I've been able to speak in all 50 states. I've spoken. Wow. This is an issue that touches every community that I've Mm -hmm. stepped foot in and no uh, social economic, no bracket is immune from family crisis and um, drug abuse, particularly with the opioid epidemic nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's um, something that's very near and dear to me because uh, one of the biggest questions I'm asked is what happened to your brother? So my brother and I both grew up in the foster care system. We were oftentimes separated. I was eventually adopted. Um, My brother as well was adopted, but we had vastly different needs, vastly different circumstances. um, And our stories went in two very different directions. I think we processed our traumas and made deliberate choices in our lives that led us down very different paths. And sadly, about three years ago, he succumbed to a drug addiction um, and died from a heroin overdose. I'm so so sorry. Thank you. Um, And it's just a very personal and constant reminder of how critical this work is. And when I say that your intervention could mean life or death, 
I don't say it casually because mm-hmm. that was the exact circumstance of my own life. I am able to be here as a mother and um, I have a master's degree in social work. So I'm a clinical social worker and I have a healthy marriage and a beautiful family um, and more blessings than i perhaps deserve, but my brother and countless other foster youth will never either make it to their 20s or see the end of their 20s. So I think that's a big reason that my why exists. And so I hope that my story can be that reminder of how even the smallest act of kindness can be that game changer and can be what is the difference between life or death for a child mm-hmm. in your own community because you don't have to look far to find a family. No. And I think a lot of people, um, when you talked about systemic problems within the system, I think there are so many. And I think a lot of people just look at that and they just think, oh, it's so messy. It's so messed up. I don't want anything to do with it. Get that like out of my life. And, um, or the perception, I, oh, there's a system in place. Surely someone else is taking care of that. It's either there, yeah. Yeah, either it's way too overwhelming or, oh, no, surely this is totally covered by someone. Yeah, somebody's going to take care of it. I don't need to. And I think just knowing that you could make a difference, I think that really resonates with people, the idea that they themselves, I mean, just your teacher giving you that book, making such a huge ripple effect and look at you now and look at the life that you're leading and and that's just so amazing and and it wasn't a huge thing but it was her taking interest in you and seeing what you needed and and I think most people most people I know would love to do something like that they just they see it as this insurmountable thing and and like you said how cool that even though all these other people may have had special training and given you the, you know, proper therapy or whatever it was, you never could have known. And your teacher never could have known that one thing would make all the difference. Absolutely. And, and well, so, and, yeah. And that's completely shifted what I do professionally today. So really? you know, when I was younger, I used to talk about just my experiences, but you know, then you reach a certain age and it's like, okay, we don't need to hear a 30 year old complaining about their childhood. <laughs> But, you know, so I I take a very kind of clinical and academic approach. I'm a major nerd. So I love a good conference. I love some evidence-based practices. But I I also, I've realized that even with all that I've studied, you know, I studied resiliency in grad school. I, I read books on theory and, you know, all of this stuff. But it really is those basic things that make it essential for kids to survive. And so wow. you know, we've experienced a lot of changes in our advocacy and something that I, I really try to impart on the helpers. So the foster parents, the volunteers, the mentors, the people who are in helping professions who give themselves so tirelessly to others, especially kids in need and trauma. It's a really big undertaking. I encourage them to just shift focus. Like don't burn out entirely. Don't just close up shop. Even the experiences that I've had as a foster parent volunteer, all of these different hats that I've worn over the years are 
advocacy and our implementation of help and aid and, and volunteering and service, it's looked different over the years. But what's important is that you maintain that passion and you maintain mm-hmm. why. And yes, you might find it too difficult to continue fostering. One day you might come across a situation where you can no longer become a CASA. Maybe there's, for whatever it is, there are ample reasons, personally, whatever. I hope that people will just shift their focus a little. Like maybe you just need to go work with animals <laughs> for a little while <laughs> and child welfare has burned you out. But don't lose that spark. Don't lose that mm. passion for change because the world desperately needs the helpers right now. And mm-hmm. And so even if your hat might look a little different, it's imperative that you still try to participate in some way. So for me, I was at CASA, then we were foster parents. And then when we transitioned from fostering, I opened a mental health agency for children and families in our own community. So um, especially when COVID hit and I was taken off the road from my usual speaking and conferences, super conference junkie. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like a conference crasher, legit. Like, I don't care what the You're like, I'll speak, I'll speak. Just it's get true. Me there. No, I kid you not. There was a, I was invited for a legit child welfare conference, but it was like the National Chicken Wing Convention coming in afterwards. And I was like, hmm, can I stay and learn about all the ladies? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a problem I should perhaps address in therapy. But so, you know, so I do that normally, but now with COVID, I'm not traveling. So I'm, I'm in my agency. I took on a caseload and we started a a social educational program for kids that couldn't matriculate back into schools. And so, you know, it's your, your passions might look a little different, but I hope that the helpers, even though they may feel burned out in one Mm -hmm. arena, I hope that they will just shift that passion into some other way to serve the community because the needs, especially now, are that yes I love that so much that is such a good suggestion and it actually hits me I'm thinking yeah I've, I've kind of moved out of fostering but what what can I do next I love that but you're doing this and this is advocacy and believe it or not just as you said earlier people have no idea this is a prevalent issue in the United States yeah in that's community. true perhaps on their own blocks. I kid you not. It it is having lived in the child welfare system and now working on the other side as a professional, it it impacts so many more people. (laughs) Even Mm -hmm. going to the school where my kiddos go, they're really big into volunteering and community service. And some of the other parents, you know, I've shared my story as a way to highlight you know, why the school supports certain local organizations that are food banks or whatever it is. And I've had parents say, oh, I've never met one of you foster people before. Oh, bless. (laughs) But there are so many misconceptions and preconceived notions about who foster kids are. Foster children are not juvenile delinquents. Foster kids are not put into care because of a fault of their own. These are not unwanted, unloved, or bad kids. These are children who are just thrust into unimaginable situations that no child should have to endure. As a foster parent, we had children who came into our home that were being used as ashtrays. We had, you know, five-year-olds who were nonverbal and couldn't feed themselves and and you know neglect is so profound um, developmentally neurologically and I love the title of your whole series you know love is never wasted because it's it's those elements of love and compassion that 
literally rewire a child's brain. And even if you feel like you are not making an impact, you absolutely are. And when you feel like you're not enough, just think about how much worse the circumstance would be had you not been there to show Mm. that child what it meant to get a safe hug from an adult. You know, this is a little one who maybe had been trafficked and physical affection is this horrific trigger and means nothing but negative and hurt and pain. But by you teaching a child that adults can be trusted, that you can have a hug from someone and not have it mean something perverse, that you can excel in your life despite what your circumstances are. And culturally, that can be really challenging because many of these children come from multi-generations of dysfunction Mm -hmm. and abuse and poverty and lack of access to education. And so they don't have anyone to model after. My Mm -hmm. class Barry Miller was so profound because not only was she like super stubborn and was not about to (laughs) go for an answer and she was going to get me whatever I needed to survive and thrive and be successful, but she was also a woman who stood up for herself and spoke her mind and didn't have to dress provocatively to get the attention of others in the room. And, you know, it's, it's, it's those little those little things, that modeling behavior that makes mm-hmm. a huge difference. Um, just seeing how she would take a phone call or, um, you know, kids were not surrounded with normalcy. You know, a lot of kids will watch their parents or their caregivers and that's how they figure out, oh, that's what a relationship should look like. So when I met my adopted parents, I was like blown away because let's be honest, my mom wears the pants (laughs) in that dynamic. But I was like, hey, you know, I can have a dad who doesn't yell and who doesn't hit and who isn't aggressive or who isn't violent. And, you know, it just blew my mind to be exposed to these other norms um, and, and learn how to create my own voice, learn how to choose friendships and relationships in my life that were healthy and positive. But if a child has never experienced genuine happiness or joy or safety, they don't know how to emulate that. They don't know how to model that. If a young person has only ever seen that violence and that strife and that, you know, chaos, that's all that they know exists. But when you're able to introduce a new emotion and a new experience in the life of a child, they have that touchstone and they know how to go back to that place to find their serenity and find their peace and find the comfort in being uncomfortable. Because even in my family, it it was a challenge because my family is very Southern. So a lot of them have really thick Southern accents and I don't. So initially I was shunned a bit and told that I sounded really stuck up and (laughs) that, you know, it, it was just this disconnect in the culture that my family comes from. And so I know a lot of children that have experienced that, kiddos that come from um, multi-generations of gangs. It's not revered to know how to read or for boys to like books or, you know, a a lot of Mm -hmm. these stereotypes and and gender norms or, you know, whatever it is, we have to show kids that you don't have to be their circumstances. You can be an artist, you can be an athlete, you can be a scholar. Just because no one's done it before you, 
you're going to be the first one. And that's, and that's exciting. I love that so much. It's, it really is. I think it's hard for people to, when they have seen that normalcy uh, displayed their whole life and practiced, and it's hard to think what, what I would be like if I hadn't seen this or, or to think that someone could just not know it exists, but it's so true. And that modeling, just knowing that it exists, like probably having your dad helps you so much know what you could hope for in a husband and look for. And um, it's just so amazing. Well, you're just amazing. And I love you so much. And I'm so honored. I just, I can't even listen to you talk all day. You're just, you're so articulate. You're just the most beautiful human being. I just love you so much. And I'm so impressed by you and honored to have had you. And tell everyone where they can find you and find your books. The more they can get um, from Ashley, the better. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I'm like 95 on the inside, but I, I do exist on social media. Even <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I called it Snapagram, which was horrifying. <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> so, but um, getting them all confused. Oh my word. It's, it's painful. But Rhodes Quarter, um, R H O D E S hyphen C O U R T E R is my name, but all one word. So I'm on social media, um, my website, Rhodes hyphen quarter.com, um, or uh, and my books are available. Am We'll link to your books and all of your social media and all of that too. (laughs) Yeah, but um, again, my what I'm doing now, especially not on the road, is I'm a clinical social worker. So if there are elements um, that we can be helpful with in your journey or just brainstorming, I would love to connect you with anyone in my wonderfully robust support system of a variety of professionals that are helping families or just helping people that are interested in giving back, but they don't know where to start. I'm happy to give, I'm happy to give anyone an earful on how to be a helper. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. Nick has been quiet this whole time. Do you have any final words? We're women just going at it. We've just been chatting. I'm just inspired. I had a list of questions and she hit every one of them, plus about five others that I did. <laughs> and I'm just incredibly inspired. And I know everybody who listens, this will be inspired. And if they read your books, they will be heartbroken and so inspired and so encouraged. And they'll, 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 what I always say, what I always try to encourage people to do is they'll run towards the problem, not away from it because the need is so real and the need is there. And, and, and like you touched on a number of times, you don't want to think that it's happening right in your neighborhood or your backyard, but it is everywhere. There's not a corner of the, of the earth where this isn't happening. And there couldn't be a more noble cause than getting involved in the life of a hurting child. And I'm just feel so lucky that you came on, spent some time with us and that our readers or our listeners will get to know who you are and they'll, they'll, they'll be introduced to your doctrine. Well, and thank you for this platform. I mean, the the awareness and advocacy is such a huge component for for all of this. So bless you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a lovely rest of your week. And it was just an honor to meet you. Awesome. Bye, friends. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please remember to go follow the podcast, uh, comment, like, and give us all the support you can. We really appreciate it. Also follow us at Love Never Wasted on Instagram and loveisneverwasted.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.